Hello, this is Zani on the uh, Free Rohingya Coalition Genocide um, podcast. Uh, um, uh, today, um, I am going to be talking to a very distinguished uh, public uh, uh, servant uh, who served in the United Nations um, the, you know, before his resignation over the Iraq War, um, Assistant Secretary General Dennis Holliday. Uh, he speaks to me uh, from Ireland, uh, where uh, he is a native of, and uh, it's it's an extreme um, you know honor uh, to have uh, uh, Dennis um, you know speak to us on the podcast. Um, he has uh, he served in the UN United Nations initially in the uh, human resources development, and then later. Uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the took a a principal stance against um, what uh, the UN's involvement in the crippling sanctions and the second invasion by the United States of uh, um, Iraq. So, so welcome, Dennis. Um, can, can I ask you, um, uh, the, with the first question, uh, which is, um, you know, Kofi Annan, the late Kofi Annan, was a a, a very um, important name in the Rwandan genocide and also, uh, you know, as a Nobel Peace Prize winner uh, of the United Nations. Uh, you know, I think like he shared the uh, uh, Nobel Peace Prize uh, with the, uh, U uh, the UN. And so do you, did you know him uh, personally and did you had, uh, have an opportunity to work with him? Um, yes, I, I've known Kofi for many, many years, and in fact, um, uh, at one stage, when I was head of human resources in the UNDP, I was asked to headhunt for a new um, deputy head for UNDP, and I went across the road and spoke to Kofi Annan. In those days, he was the head of human resources for the United Nations, and uh, to get advice, I was looking for an African, and he asked him for, to give me names. Never once did I consider him suitable material for that job, which looking back, I always find is amusing. And I dare say he held it against me for the rest of my career. Because of the rest of my career, uh, I ended up in the same job that he had. I also became head of human resources for the United Nations when I was withdrawn from uh, ba uh, Bangkok, right, where I was working for UNDP. Abudra Gali brought me back to take over the UN job. And meantime, Coffey had moved to be undersecretary for peacekeeping. And one of the first jobs I was given was to clean up the, the sort of uh, intrusion into the secretariat in New York of men in military uniforms. Coffey, to enhance his... Um, his, his peacekeeping capabilities had brought in 30, 40, maybe even 50 military advisors. And they came in without pay. They were paid by their own, you know, Pentagon or British MOD or whoever it was. They wore their uniforms. They had passes. So they, they, but they were completely alien figures in the, in the Secretariat of the United Nations, which after all is dedicated to peace, security, human rights, and all the good things. And I was given the job, and the, 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 the member states kicked up a huge row. And suddenly I, I was given the job to go down and explain to the, the committee of the General Assembly as to why we were employing these military figures all over the Secretariat. And that was Coffee's first gift to me. He didn't do it, or tried to do it. He, I ended up doing it. But thereafter then, uh, he, of course, as undersecretary, was faced with the problem of Rwanda. And to this day, I, I, I do not understand why he did not respond. You know, on the ground in Rwanda, I think we had something like 5,000 peacekeeping troops in, in Rwanda at the time. We had a, we had a gen general in command from, uh, from uh, Canada. Canada. Yeah who was begging, apparently, for permission to use the troops. You mean De De Delaire, Delaire, right? That's correct. And he was begging for permission to separate the different ethnic groups in Rwanda where the killing had begun. And Coffey, undersecretary, never had, never, he couldn't get permission, I suppose, from the Security Council, because the Americans certainly vetoed it, and probably the British too, but certainly the Americans did, because Clinton did not want to be sucked into another genocidal situation. And, uh, and, uh, but Coffey never had the courage to stand up and authorize 
the general to go ahead, who would have would have done so immediately, because he would have lost his job. But Coffey was a great survivor. Mm. He, he wasn't a man of courage. He survived, and he survived and went on to become Secretary General, because, of course, he was American-educated, a friend of uh, a friend of Madame Albright, and he was the perfect, soft, easygoing Secretary General the Americans decided they could handle. Whereas, of course, Boutros Galley, they could not handle, and he didn't, you know, give them the what's the word? He didn't kowtow to the to the State Department as they had hoped he might have done. So, Coffee was a perfect pick, but he, in my view, he neglected terribly the situation in Rwanda, and uh, and the consequences, of course, are horrific. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, himself, you know, uh, he grew up in Africa. Uh, and um, I think he went to uh, McAllister College in uh, Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. That's, and, that's correct. Yeah. Um, so th- th- I want I want to pick up on um, one thing that you mentioned. Uh, you knew him personally, like you know, as uh, you were both uh, 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 the Korea diplomats uh, within the United Nations, uh, you know, in within the uh, civilian structure. Um, why did you? Well, what what were the signs that you see that or you saw at the time when he you knew him um, that did not make him the best candidate for either head of the UN peacekeeping operations, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, in New York or later, um, despite the uh, uh, you know his late leadership failure. Uh, as the head of UN peacekeeping operations, he was promoted to be uh, the the uh, secretary general of the United Nations. As some might argue, you as you said, he was a softy. He would count out to the Americans, and so maybe precisely that was the. These are the qualifications that uh, um, uh, you know uh, got him promoted to the uh, uh, to be the head of the uh, United Nations Secretariat. Yes, when I when I went to see him in connection with this big job at UNDP, I mean, I, I in my mind I classified him as an administrative clerk mentality, and maybe McAllister is not a great university. I don't quite know what his qualifications were, but he never showed the sort of courage. He wasn't a man to rattle the, the cage. He was very cautious, very careful. Made every, he never made any sort of commitments or statements or act, took actions that would uh, jeopardize his popularity. And when I took over later in later years and became head of human resources in the UN, the first thing I asked was, can you show me the various policy changes that Mr. Kofi Annan made? There were none. So he, he was not the guy who would rock the boat. <laughs> for Absolutely a- not. And that, that's how you survive in the big secretariat. Right. You don't rock the boat. Right. So, like in the, um, with respect to the, um, you know, the current uh, ongoing, uh, you know, the, the genocide against the Rohingyas in in Burma uh, or Myanmar, as they call it now, um, I mean, my own country. Um, as you as you know, before his death, uh, Kofi Annan Foundation. And uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's government signed a contract to bring in Kofi Annan as essentially the, uh, you know, highly paid uh, uh, consultant on peace and reconciliation. And, uh, you know, Kofi Annan, uh, you know, characteristically told the the line of uh, the the government in power in in Burma, uh, refused to call the... um, uh, the the victims of the Burmese genocide by their own name, which was essentially in violation of the United Nations principle or, you know, uh, principle of, uh, you know, the, the community groups and cultural gr- groups having the right to self-identify. You know, it's not the business of the UN or any national governments to tell or order any community, national or cultural or racial or ethnic, how they should be called. And in violation of that principle, you know, at least like I would give um, uh, Ban Ki-moon, who in the presence of Burmese generals and Aung San Suu Kyi and others um, in Naypyidaw or the new capital around the uh, uh, World Economic Forum, 
you know, simply said, look, you know, we UN has a principle and I, as the head of the uh, Secretariat, uh, cannot not call the Rohingya by their own name. He stuck to his gun, whereas, in fact, his predecessor, uh, Kofi Annan, went along with Aung San Suu Kyi's uh, insistence or conditionality that he takes the job, uh, you know, in so far as he complies with the Myanmar government or Suu Kyi's, uh, uh, you know, condition that Rohingya be not addressed as Rohingya. So, so that, I mean, that's how compliant he was, you know, in dealing with situations uh, that involves essentially genocide. So do, do you care to comment on that kind of like trampling of, uh, uh, you know, the organization's principles or, you know, basically undermining its own, um, you know, peacekeeping or atrocity prevention missions by Kofi Annan? Well, first of all, he, I mean, San Suu Kyi had won the Nobel Peace Prize. The United Nations won the Nobel Peace Prize, and coffee got associated with that. Though why is a mystery to, I think, many of us. So the two, they became buddies. They became part of this group of what do they call the elders or something of that sort. The oh, elders, yes. Yes, it was uh, funded by uh, uh, the Virgin, uh, you know, benefactor in, uh, you know, the yeah, Virgin that's right. group. So they would have been... They would have been friends in that sense. Secondly, uh, the Kofi Annan Foundation, I don't know, quite know how it was funded, but I wouldn't be surprised to find there was Ford Foundation or Rockefeller money or other source, American sources of funding which kept the foundation in Geneva going. And of course, he owed perhaps something to that source. And thirdly, he was very much an American Secretary General and an American collaborator, and he, he followed the... The, the process of the State Department and the White House in, in connection with Myanmar and, and San Suu Kyi herself and the, the vested interests of um, some, if not all, of the five veto powers of the Security Council. I mean, they all have interests in, in, in Burma, in Myanmar, as far as I know. So he just played along, I think, and kept trying to keep everybody happy. That, that's, that's the way I think he operated best. Yeah. Um, now, going back to the uh, Rwanda genocide, because like you know, our our interest is or concern is uh, uh, the the role of the uh, United Nations in um, you know uh, the mass atrocity cases, or essentially you know the grave uh, cases where uh, the states are found to be or uh, credibly accused to be violating. You know the international law, um, you know particularly criminal law involving crimes against humanity, war crimes, uh, and genocide, like your three gravest crimes. And then uh, you you took a principal stance, um, you know, surrounding the um, the United States policy and the UN's involvement in uh, I, I think crippling sanctions against Iraq. And as you know, at uh, the you know the the, uh, you know, Madeleine Albright at the time, the um, secretary of uh, secretary of state for the United States, was asked uh, uh, what she thought of the um, you know sanctions that involved uh, even uh, blockade of uh, medicine and food, and how that was uh, you know devastatingly impacting. Uh, the lives of young uh, Iraqi children, and she said, uh, in order to oust uh, Saddam Hussein and the lives of these, um, uh, you know, young um, Iraqis, including infants and children, and uh, 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 you know, being uh, treated as collateral was worth it. You know, the sanctions are worth it. Um, yes. And, and uh, can you can you can you tell the audience um, what are the situations? That had led to your, you know, uh, essentially a momentous decision to end your, you know, the 30, 40 years of uh, uh, distinguished uh, career in the UN. Yeah, well, what happened was uh, Albright was on NBC's program 60 Minutes. And the interviewer said to her, you know, we understand half a million children have died in Iraq due to the impact of these sanctions. And do you think it's worth it? And she said, yes, to get rid of Saddam Hussein, we believe it's, I believe it's worth it. Which that's what, that's what happened. She got, 
she got into this uh, statement, which I, I, I would like to think she regretted later, but maybe not. Yeah, forgive, actually, forgive, uh, a, forgive me for interrupting because uh, this is a very, very important figure. Uh, Five hundred thousand, you know, some say six hundred thousand. Yeah, just say like half a million uh, Iraqi children uh, reportedly died as a result of the uh, direct impact or uh, of the U.S. sanctions. Yeah, but that's about roughly the number of um, Hungarian Jews that were transported to Auschwitz. Yeah, that's right. No, the point was, I think, that what happened was that uh, the UNICEF uh, was present, of course, naturally. The whole UN system was basically present in Iraq when I was there, funded entirely, let me add quickly, by the Iraqi Oil for Food program. You know, we, we, the, we the United Nations, took rev all the revenue of exported Iraqi oil uh, directly and it gave a certain amount back for compensation to Kuwait and Kuwaitis and then gave uh, for, uh, 30 something percent of it back to the program for oil for food where we where we uh, were together with government and I on the ground sat with government both in Baghdad and in the Kurdish north to work out what we would do with 4.2 billion every six months. But I used the UNICEF report, and when I got there in uh, 1997, I took the UNICEF report and the UNICEF representative with me, and I said I went to see the uh, the um, I, I raised the issue with with Kofi Annan in New York, pointing out that the death rate of of children was appalling, as reported by UNICEF, and I got permission from Tariq Aziz, who was then the Deputy Prime Minister under Saddam Hussein to go to New York and to go to the Security Council through the Secretary General and get an increase in the amount of money available. And, and <clears throat> I got permission from Tower Aziz to increase the amount to 80, no, 8.4 uh, billion. And Kofi Annan would not support me. Why not? So in return, Why not? Well, he, because politically, he, he probably feared this would not be well received by the Americans. Mm. Just as you've just recorded uh, Albright, I mean, she was a Secretary of State, so it, was, it would have been a, sort of a, <clears throat> a problem for her, I dare say. So what I did was I, I then went, uh, and this is a, a violation of my, my contract, I suppose, I went to see the Russian, Chinese, and French ambassadors, who were all in Tehran, whereas, of course, the British and the Americans had no representation. And I showed them the UNICEF data and I asked them to take this up with their headquarters in, in Beijing and Paris and um, Moscow. Uh, whatsoever it's, Moscow, which they did. And in, uh, a month later, I was called into New York to talk to the Security Council because they, they the three of them supported my view that we needed to increase the resources so that the Iraqi sanctions program <clears throat> would be left less uh, devastating on the well-being and simple human rights of the Iraqi people. But Kofi then uh, joined the team, so to speak, <clears throat> and the, the council <clears throat> approved a, a large increase. But that's how it was done. It wasn't done by him. It was done by those of us on the ground who knew the details. And what happened was that um, the there, was, there was chronic malnutrition amongst young children due to the sanctions regime, which didn't provide uh, animal proteins or fresh fruit or fresh vegetables or all the basics. It was a very, very core sort of uh, program. And uh, children were simply um, growing up uh, stunted physically and uh, certainly with learning difficulties, if not stunted mentally as well. And you could see it when you would cry. When I did a documentary with John Pilger, we interviewed, we talked to children and, you know, the child looked like he was 12, and it turned out he was 15, because there was a, was a complete uh, delay in the development of children due to the bad diet that the sanctions imposed upon them. Uh, plus the games played by the Americans, particularly um, the British, when it came to children who were suffering from uh, leukemia. And we had thousands of children suffering from leukemia in 96, 97, 98, and so on thereafter, because they'd been exposed to nuclear residue by the fact the Americans had used uh, depleted uranium shells during the 1991 war. But that's under uh, George Bush Sr. 
No, that's George Bush. Senior. Ju- yeah, sorry. Senior. You're quite right. Yes. And for the f- that was the first time, as far as I know, that um, depleted uranium was used as a weapon. And if the, the people who work in the world of killing, it's a very effective weapon. And it cut through the four-inch thick steel tanks that uh, the Iraqi military used. They were Russian, I believe. And it, when the shell went through, the cut through the four inches of steel, they would explode inside the tank and the whole thing would blow up and you'd have billions of particles of nuclear residue uh, going into people's lungs, being blown by the wind maybe 100 miles or further north or south, and going into the water systems and the root crops. So within five years, we had thousands of children in Basra and in, in Kuwait in the south of um, Iraq where these weapons were used by, as you say, George the father, um, <clears throat> Bush the father. And, uh, and this, this was done without the knowledge of British troops and possibly even the American troops. And the fact is that when American troops returned to uh, the States, they, they themselves had been contaminated because they weren't properly briefed with the Pentagon. And I spoke, I remember, in, in Manhattan to a trade union group and said that I believed something like 5,000 uh, American troops had been contaminated and in, in turn uh, had contaminated their own children. And I was, I was sh- shouted down by uh, some trade unionists in the back row, said, rubbish, it's 50,000 troops came back and were contaminated and contaminated. So American children were contaminated by the use of, of depleted uranium in the 1991 Gulf War. Quite extraordinary. So you can imagine the way what we found in, in, um, in Baghdad. That was a huge issue. And the Americans and the British, can, uh, they deliberately interfered in the, the program of treatment for child leukemia. Uh, which ensured that more more children died than than was actually necessary. It was a very sinister, very deliberate killing program, which makes it easy. It made it easy for me, of course, to add the word genocide because this was very deliberate uh, killing of children and adults. Cause they got thyroid cancer uh, to put pressure on Saddam Hussein to I don't know pack his bags and leave or surrender or whatever the word was. But of course, sanctions don't do that. Sanctions are a very dangerous blunt instrument, and they they hurt everybody, but they hurt the people at the bottom the most, the poor and underprivileged and all the rest of it. And uh, that's exactly, of course, what happened in, in Iraq. Would you would you say, um, you know, the having you, yourself to, you know, been involved in different um, uh, people's tribunals on, say, uh, you know, the case of uh, Sri Lanka against uh, Elam Tamil, uh, the um, the Burmese uh, the state against uh, Rohingya Muslims and then and now, uh, you know you're uh, the, the, this is new to me uh, the use of word uh, genocide which would, would uh, perhaps um, the intent the, the you know knowingly applying uh, the you know U.S. and U.N. policies towards the uh, the Saddam's regime with the knowledge that uh, the policies are having essentially a, a genocidal impact. And so would, uh, would it be fair to say that uh, uh, the, the U.S. and U.N. policy toward uh, Saddam Hussein at the time, you know, although intended target was Saddam regime, but the price was borne by the, uh, you know, young uh, Iraqi children and infants and, uh, you know, uh, youth, uh, uh, something like a uh, genocide by default you know i mean you you the, i mean the, the by the mere fact that like you're meddling albright in her official capacity as secretary of state would uh, you know approvingly said um, you know um okay 600,000 um, or 500,000 iraqi children are being devastated but we are cool with that but i mean that's an admission of a criminal responsibility you know Hello. You know the 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 definition of genocide uh, requires the word. I think it's deliberation. No intent. Can, intent. You, intent. Intentionality. That's right. So you can't have genocide by mistake. Genocide is done through intent, and there's no doubt in my mind that managing the sanctions the way the British and the Americans did 
intention of for genocide was there. There's no question in my mind. Uh, the reason, one of the reasons I <clears throat> resigned, that I began to feel complicit in this genocide by running this program, which was totally inadequate. I was never going to address the issue. So the 500,000, by the time I got there in 97 and then into 98, I would have said was closer to a million. Certainly eight or 900,000 children had died from malnutrition, childbirth. And usually they died in the, between you know, three months and three years, very young children. And the, 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 um, before the UN took over, Iraq, the, the uh, death rate for um, Iraqi children was 50 over 1,000 live births. When the, the, thanks to the sanctions and the United Nations and the British and the Americans in particular, that figure became 150 well, three times over 1,000 live births. So that's what the, the United Nations did to the children of Iraq. And of course, adults, the elderly, and those two were uh, ill, uh, they died like flies too, because cancer was quite common, smoking problems, all the rest of it. It wasn't only children, but the bulk of the damage was was children. That's just the, the film that John Pilger made um, with me in Iraq. We called it, I think, the, the Killing the Children of Iraq. Yeah, um, I interviewed uh, Yok Chung, who is the uh, executive director of uh, Cambodian Documentation Center, uh, doing the documentation worker for the last uh, 25 years. Uh, and, uh, you know, Documentation Center is probably the best-known research uh, center on Cambodian genocide. He, is, he told me in no certain terms that the United Nations uh, supported Khmer Rouge after the facts of, uh, of their the, the regime atrocities came to light as a genocidal. Uh, so uh, the, I think, you know, shockingly, from what you're describing about the United Nations uh, policies, uh, whether it's done through or the, uh, through the push by U.S. and U.K. or like, you know, uh, you know, by whoever within the, uh, the, uh, the U.N. system. Why do you think the United Nations keeps, you know, repeating this complicitous behavior uh, in situations where, uh, you know, UN has to stand on its principle and discharge its original mission, uh, the, which, uh, you know, which is to advance the uh, human well-being and peace and stability around the world. Why do you think this organization keeps failing and uh, failing with like devastating consequences for uh, communities that are uh, that it is meant to serve around the world. Well, the fact is that the member, the the United Nations, is made up of a one hundred and ninety three nation states, sovereign nation states. The Security Council, set up very cleverly in Yalta by uh, the three thugs I mentioned earlier, Roosevelt, uh, Stalin, and. Uh, Churchill, uh, that was uh, that was very cleverly designed so they would control the United Nations, having seen how the League of Nations failed. And uh, the decisions made about sanctions were made, of course, not by the 193. It was actually made by the members of the five veto powers of the Security Council. And of that five, three did not participate in the final decision. The Russians, the French, and the Chinese did not endorse the sanctions regime, but they also didn't veto it, mm. unfortunately. So they kept quiet. So it went through based on the British and American uh, vote. And uh, the decisions about withholding leukemia medication, for example, the decision about what components we could provide in the, in the, in the food basket, we used to call it casually, but it was actually, it include education and other um, technology for communications and other things needed by the country, including um, electric power production, all of which had been bombed by the Americans in violation of international law. You know, civilian infrastructure is not supposed to be destroyed in, in warfare. That sounds sort of naive in the world today. So the, 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 the wrongs that are done by the United Nations, as you say, are actually wrongs done by various members of the United Nations itself. 
The UN doesn't control those members. Those members control the UN. And the only man who could stop that, theoretically, would be the Secretary General. But we've never had a Secretary General yet who's resigned. And he has Article 90 of the UN Charter. And under 90, uh, Article 90 of the UN Charter, the Secretary General is allowed enabled to stand up and take on the Security Council and correct them, make a point. And I think that was done by Dag Hammarskjöld when he flew to China just to, to, to avoid a war over the spying ac in, uh, accusations of the Chinese vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Americans. I'm not sure, but I think I'm right in saying that, that was Article 90. But nobody else had the guts to do that. And of course, we know what happened to, happened to Hammarskjöld. Right, he was right. murdered. Yeah, murdered by the British or the French or possibly the. You mean like in a in a in, a, uh, in an accident made to look like a plane crash? He was, we know there was a there was a second plane which shot down the UN aircraft. It's it's all covered up in Rhodesia. The uh, the people who knew the truth were all Africans who were engineers and airport people, and they knew they knew there were two engines. They could they could tell. Uh, there was a fighter plane involved, probably British or Belgian, maybe. And um, but when it came to the trial and the investigation, they were excluded by the Rhodesian uh, white uh, regime from participating in the in the court case. Right. Yeah. Well, you're talking about the present day Zimbabwe. I'm, no, I'm talking about uh, he was a man called Malensky, who yeah. was the British head of Rhodesia at the time. Right. No, no. Rhodesia was re Zimbabwe. Rhodesia was renamed Zimbabwe. That's what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. So I mean, the the murder of Hammarskjöld was covered up by the member states who were guilty of 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 being uh, guilty of it. In my view. Right. Right. Um, so that that's uh, that. The point was, I, what the point I'm making is, there aren't many Hammarskjölds in the world. Right. And and certainly we we didn't we've never had another one like that in the UN. And the UN very deliberately, uh, the UN member states. I should keep on saying very deliberately select secretary generals who are vulnerable. They have some weak points. So Voltheim turned out to have a Nazi past. Right. That, right. Made, him, that made him vulnerable. Uh, Boutrous Boutrous Ghali was involved in the, 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 the accord between Egypt and the Israelis, which made him vulnerable in many parts of the world, you might say. The guy... Hello? Yeah. Was... But extremely weak as as a secretary general. Coffee had his own weaknesses. So it's it's a history. They've they've learned by experience. No more strong secretary generals. We want a wishy washy guy. We can control. And then ever since, basically, and including today, they are in control. Particularly the five veto powers. Well, you know, if if that's the case, um, you know, the system is set up as a as the uh, as a tool for the. Um, for the world's powers, and then the the, yes. the 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 bureaucratic chief is carefully selected to make sure the man uh, has weaknesses uh, that they can uh, use yes. to blackmail, or simply like you know Correct. a weak man that that would be whipped into compliance. Um, yeah. And then what what about the um, you know the the rest of the. Um, you know, a hundred and ninety-three or so uh, the member states. You know, like what about the general assembly? What can it do? I mean, like you know, well, well, gen the general assembly works on the basis of democracy. Right. They have equal equal ranking. So uh, I used to deal with the secretary with the general assembly, the fifth committee, who control the budget, because being head of human resources. We, I spent 83% of the budget, apparently, on staff. So, I mean, I know how they work very well in their committees. And the, they, many of the countries, I think, are genuinely committed and do a very good job. But they have no power. The power resides with the Security Council. And that's, that's the great weakness. I mean, I, I, I honestly call it corrupt. The Security Council is corrupt because it's controlled by these ma major states who are warmongers. They sell weapons. They make weapons, they are, they, they are guilty of, of um, aggression, military aggression, and uh, they're in charge of peace and security. I mean, how stupid is that? I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a, a sick joke to have these military states in charge of peace. And that's what, that's what we have. So until we reform the Security Council and make it north-south and inclusive of all of the various parts of the world, which don't forget the, the South, quote-unquote, is basically not represented there in the veto world at all. 
Uh, I mean, China is not the South. Let's not pretend that. So it's completely screwed up and it has to be completely changed. But how to do it with the veto power arrangements, uh, as we've discussed already, uh, is, is just nigh impossible. And that's the tragedy. But the other thing I, I need to say is that the, the member states and the United Nations the world of, of uh, genocide and sanctions and warfare, and th these are uh, even peacekeeping, these are relatively few and far between in the sense that we have something like 35 agencies of the United Nations system, from aviation to health to agriculture to industry, you know, you name it, it's there, and, and they do extraordinarily good work on the ground. I mean, when I worked for UNDP, we financed all these agencies on, in Iran, let's say, back in the 60s. We had programs for in planning capabilities and health in adult literacy with UNESCO. So, I mean, a lot of very good work goes on every day of the week throughout the world through the UN system, but not, not when the Security Council is involved. That changes everything, sadly, and that's where we see the corruption and, and the damage the UN has done to the world and to itself. Yeah, uh, you know, like, uh, as you know, um, this, this Charles Petrie report uh, in the context of um, the Sri Lanka and how, you know, the, uh, the war, uh, the civil war between the Elam Tamil uh, armed movement and uh, Colombo, uh, the government of Sri Lanka ended, you know, um, the mass killings, mass, you know, extrajudicial uh, executions. Uh, you know, the, 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 in, according to Geneva Conventions, that uh, once um, uh, the, the armed uh, combatants or the enemy troops uh, surrender, uh, you are not to execute them in any way, shape or form. But the, as a result of, um, you know, the UN's failure uh, in the context of Sri Lanka, uh, the, the uh, Ban Ki-moon brought in something called... Um, um, rights upfront approach, yeah, because the uh, UN agencies were uh, the accused, uh, you, you know, uh, UNDP, uh, UNICEF, and you know, and and, and UNHCR, uh, the, the, you know, the, were accused of uh, essentially, um, you know, the lending legitimacy to uh, the, to one party while undermining, uh, you know, the non-state actor in a. Um, in a very active, brutal uh, military conflict, uh, um, but that, well, that's... We, we, we've seen that in your own country, where the United Nations agencies, UNICEF and many others, World Health and all the rest of it, have not been able to work in Rakhine State, have not been able to serve the Rohingya population of uh, Myanmar because they're controlled by the politicians and the big powers. In the, in the Security Council, who have vested interests in Myanmar, as we, you know better than I, and had vested interests, of course, in, in Sri Lanka. The Chinese wanted that uh, huge um, harbor facility. The, um, the British had, were the colonial power of the past and had vested interests. The CIA had a listening post in Sri Lanka watching, mo monitoring shipping, going around the tip of India and on up to into the through Indonesia into the China Sea, South China Sea. So everybody was there. The UN wasn't involved. No, no big decisions were made by the UN. They were all made by member states who controlled the United Nations. That's the tragedy of it. It's always about the big boys. And is Myanmar not the same story? In the case of the, um, you know, the UN agencies on the ground, UNDP, uh, the, the UNHCR, and, and the World Food Programs and others, in Myanmar today, you know, the, uh, the UN resident coordinator um, uh, from uh, Canada uh, was, you know, essentially like uh, the re, um, the removed and the re, uh, given a new position in India because uh, she became um, embroiled in, in the attempt or in her attempt to cover up or suppress the uh, human rights uh, report uh, that she herself to, um, commissioned, uh, you know, uh, that when the uh, human rights report from Rakhine State about the Rohingyas and Muslims uh, in the uh, in the state, uh, the, uh, 
was presented to her because uh, the uh, the the report uh, described a very grim, um, you know, uh, the crimes against humanity situation. Uh, that she decided to shelf it or suppress it, and so when that story broke, um, you know, there was a massive um, international outcry against uh, UN resident coordinator. Uh, yeah, well, she, she should have been fired on the spot. Well, she was promoted uh, uh, to, to to be the head of India, UN in India. See, I mean, that's yeah. the problem, you know. Uh, I think, like, you know, the failures are rewarded within this uh, United Nations. You see what I mean? I mean, like, uh, you would know this much better than I. Uh, you know, like Kofi Annan, um, the fail as the UN um, head of peacekeeping operations and in, you know, instead of being um, you know chucked out, um, then he was promoted to be the secretary general, and then Norwegian Nobel Committee uh, awarded him uh, as a co-recipient of a Nobel Peace Prize for the United Nations. And so, I mean, if if you're like elementary school students, if you if you fail, you you get a failing grade. But instead, uh, you know, these individuals uh, within the UN uh, are promoted despite their failures. Well, you, you, I mean, again, I think you have to accept that the, she was Canadian, you said the woman is Canadian? Canadian, yes, sir. Yeah, I mean, I would guess that apart from her attempt to cover up the reality of human rights violations and all the rest of it, the Canadians probably came to her rescue and said, yes, yes, so you, by all means, get rid of her and give her something else that doesn't matter which would be India, because there aren't the same sort of human rights issues in India, I don't suppose. But, I mean, it's very much interference, and it shouldn't happen, and it obviously does happen. But uh, the agencies themselves would never stand behind this sort of cover-up or, or this sort of uh, dishonesty, in, in my view. I mean, I, I, I mean, of course there are mistakes. Of course you have weak brethren, and mistakes are made, but it's not policy. It's just corruption of the of the system and not having the best people in in in, in position. And, and as a resident coordinator, frankly, is not a competent person when it comes to the situation in Myanmar. They're not trained for that. They're more likely to be development oriented in some way, or that sort of a, an economist or something along those lines. They're not uh, human rights people. They're not. They don't work for UNHCR. They don't even represent UNHCR. So it, it's a the wrong people in the wrong place at the wrong time who weren't competent. I mean, this is, uh, to me, it's as simple as that. Yeah, I think the, you know, my, my, uh, the, in the case of Burma, uh, the, the, the president secretary general, uh, Antonio Guterres, uh, you know, under pressure from uh, different um, uh, individuals or forces uh, within and outside the UN commission internal assessment of uh, how UN performed, uh, you know, uh, obviously very uh, unsatisfactorily, uh, to say, uh, you know, uh, at at best, and yes. uh, complete failure at worst. Uh, you know, in you know, when when the United Nations uh, agencies with like hundreds of millions of budgets operating in a member country, where a genocide was ongoing, uh, you know, by the members, mem by that very member state. Uh, the, the, he commissioned this as internal assessment headed by the um, uh, one of the Latin American or Central American ex foreign minister, um, and then like, but nobody takes the responsibility. You say like this is a system failure. Security Council uh, has tied the UN's hands, and so UN cannot do anything. But but nobody takes responsibility. You see what I mean? I mean, if, if no, but Zani, what, I, what I'm trying to explain is there is no UN. UN is 193 states. There's no, there's no, the UN alone has no power. The Secretary General has no power. He follows instructions. He is, I mean, I used to describe, I mean, the, the member states are the masters. We in the Secretariat were the slaves at best. Or, you know, we followed instructions or we quit. Right. It's as simple as that, basically. But, yeah, it, and it, most people don't want to quit. Yeah, in 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 your case, you quit. What 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 uh, what what are the um? What was it like uh, to have resigned from you know from a well, career you know, that I, you held a very dear as a young person, and then like you know growing up professionally and uh, um, otherwise uh, within this institution that became your home. Well, you know, I 
you know, I mean, I wasn't that young, but then I was already 58. So I, yeah. but, but the point is that what was happening in Iraq and which I became, I felt, I think as I was overseeing this so-called oil for food program, although I had it doubled in size, the fact was that children continued to die, the malnutrition, the collapse of agriculture, education, all the rest of it. I mean, we were wrecking, destroying this country. We were allowing sanctions to um, slaughter the, the people, the civilians of Iraq, while it was aimed theoretically at Saddam Hussein. So it was a crazy situation, uh, you know, to be in. And I just, I could not live with myself if I continued. But by resigning, my plan was not to sort of run away and hide my head in the sand. I planned to go and speak to the parliamentarians around the world. And I did. I left in November. In December, I was in Washington doing a briefing to the to the Congress. What was the year? The Sorry to interrupt. 98, the end of 98, right. beginning of 99. I briefed to Washington, I briefed London, I briefed Paris, I briefed uh, Australia. I mean, I was all over the place, Canada too. And they listened wisely and they, they understood what I was saying and they agreed with me, but they did nothing. Right. They didn't want to know, frankly. And the Foreign Minister of Canada, who said, oh, Mr. Halliday, there's nothing we can do, one year later, when he was out of office, he asked to see me in New York and wondered, is there anything he could do to help? I said to him, basically, it's, I didn't say it's too late, but that's what I wanted to say. Yeah, in no yeah. power then. But in power, these people would do nothing. Right. And the, Dem the Democrats they were not in, were in, um, in Washington, who may have agreed with me also, because I was called up by the... Uh, very, very interesting uh, black American politician from, I've forgotten now, he's, he's dead. But I mean, they, they, they also may have understood what I was saying, but they, they had no authority to change Bush policy or Clinton policy. Right. So it's, it's very frustrating. So I, I, um, I, I tried to change the minds of, of, of parliamentarians. And I did a, when I did that video with John Pilger, for example, I, I went. I, I gave a copy to every member of the Security Council, and the Russian ambassador, who is now Sergei Lavrov, who's now the Foreign Minister, stood up. And I, I went there myself. He stood up in the Security Council. Right. He said, "You've all got this uh, CV. No, this what you call it? This tape, or whatever it's no, the CD from Dennis Halliday. I suggest you all look at it." He was very supportive, and always was for me. And so were the French and the Chinese. But they, they were guilty. They were guilty of not standing up to the Americans and the British, not taking responsibility, not using their veto power. Right. That was the problem. Yeah. And the Secretary General was into, he was surviving. He didn't want to get involved either. Yeah. So I mean, it's a, very, it's a miserably sad story. I mean, you're describing a situation where, you know, like um, in the, the uh, member states with the real power, looking out for their own national interests, uh, however defined. And then you've, yes, got, you, you've got individual leaders or officials uh, that run the UN bureaucracies. Um, they are looking out for their own um, personal um, interests. And then you've got like, an, you know, uh, national cabinet ministers looking out for their own interests. And so, you know, it's an extraordinary move that you made um, that when you decided to, you know, basically publicly resign so that you could live with yourself and then you could tell the uh, uh, <coughs> the ugly truth about what was going on with respect to uh, the UN. No, I, I think, I mean, lots of people resign or, or from, from difficult jobs where you can't make progress. Uh, I mean, it's, I, in fact, it's, it's true that I was the first assistant secretary general ever to resign from the united nations but you know it didn't do a lot of good my own government didn't uh, didn't didn't support me particularly nobody supported me. It didn't make any difference right. everything continued sad to say and then we ended up with the invasion of by the americans in uh, 2000 and when was it three 2002 or 2003 i believe yes yeah, I mean, like, okay, or the, you know, it, the, I mean, it's 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 uh, outside the uh, scope of our talk. Uh, so, uh, the, I I would, uh, the, the you know, not go to the uh, second invasion. It's it was obviously illegal. Uh, you know, Colin Powell with his like laughable yellow cake story as, uh, before the council. We all know this, but 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 what is the most inspiring to me is that, you know, 
the to stand up and be counted, or even if not counted, uh, to retain the conscience of your um, conscience, conscience and integrity um, of your own. What, what, what was what was? But I think that I think for many of us, and you're including yourself, I think some of us have just can't control our conscience. We, that's too important to us. We can't live with ourselves. So it wasn't that difficult for me. I mean, I was disappointed to give up the opportunity. Maybe I could have got on. Maybe I could have become, who knows, Secretary General, possibly. Who yeah. knows? But that, I mean, that, was, that just wasn't on the cards, and it wasn't important enough. And I think I, I, I had no hesitation. I think and the man who replaced me, as you know, 18 months later, he resigned for the same reasons. For, right. for, for, for complicity. So I think there are lots of people who live by their own standards and, and take tough decisions. People who step out of government, uh, there must be examples, I can't think of them off the top of my head. But I don't want to make the I don't want to be seen to be that exceptional. It, it was just in that context and, and the UN didn't I don't know, didn't employ people who, who were in these jobs like I was, which where I had this great capacity to change, but couldn't make the change because I was being controlled by a weak Secretary General and a strong Security Council. Right. And America in particular. Well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, trying to lionize you or uh, that those who, um, you know, no, no. who uh, live up to their own um, conscience and expectations. But, you know, it becomes extraordinary when... Um, a, a person of influence and and, and uh, you know or in positions of uh, of the authority uh, give up uh, the his or her uh, privileges and influence you know the, to 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 to, uh, to keep his conscience intact. What kind well, of you know, uh, what I, kind I, of I, family uprising? I mean, after I resigned, yeah. I became much more powerful, and I had access to member states and their parliaments all around the world. I mean, I had access I'd never had as an assistant secretary general. Right. The fact is, I maybe I didn't convince them or they believed me, but they didn't do anything about it. That's a, that's another issue, really. Well, I mean, that influence and that access came through uh, what was seen as a, a you know, a right and moral and courageous decision, yeah? But I think, like, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think, like, uh, you... Uh, you know, uh, saw that as a goal. You know, your your decision was motivated by, I can't live with this. You know, with the situation I am in. But the, the, what I want to get to you uh, get it is that uh, are there like family or personal um, you know experiences um, you know uh, that may have a um, you know uh, strengthen your resolve to to leave this. Uh, um, but essentially, a cushy career. Uh, well, I, I mean, I was born. Uh, my father. <clears throat> I, I grew up in a Quaker family, and Quakers, as you know, are very much dedicated to nonviolence. And my father was an active follower of Gandhi. Went to India several times. He led the Irish pacifist movement. So I grew up in that context, and I grew up as, a, as a, even as a high school student. Taking, making protests. I remember at the age of 15 or 16 coming out of my school and finding a, uh, a Nazi symbol top, on top of a Jewish uh, poster. And I went home and got my father. We drove back into the city with a bucket of black paint and I painted it out. And so from the very beginning, and in Trinity College in Dublin, I was protesting the nuclear testing of the French in the South Pacific. Uh, protesting apartheid in South Africa. So I grew up uh, with a lot of other young people, and probably including yourself, in, in a mode of protesting human rights violations and other criminology around the world. So, I mean, I was always that. So when I went into the UN and I was invited to by Amnesty to spy on SAVAC, I mean, that was a very awkward thing for me to do, to reject that invitation, because my, my soul <laughs> was with Amnesty. My job was in Iran, and Iran under the Shah, and Savak was, as you probably know, the secret police with a notorious reputation. So, you know, I compromised also in that case, certainly. Right. But I think I just, it's a tradition, and I, I, I think some of us grow up with a tradition where, where, where we, we are 
not trained, but we we learn with uh, in varying degrees to stand up for what is right and try to make things better rather than rather than turn away and look the other direction. Well, I, I thank you for that, and and you know those of us who who have uh, known you for ye- uh, some years. Um, have nothing but uh, you know great respect and admiration. Um, you know, before we end, uh, we are almost at one hour mark. Um, uh, can you care to comment on the most contemporary and uh, consequential events that are happening around the world? Uh, you know, concerning uh, Black Lives Matter, and uh, you know, the, I, I think this will be our final uh, uh, question and your uh, parting um, uh, comments. Yeah, well, setting aside the UN, because frankly, as we discussed, I don't think the UN, as as formally as a format at the moment with the Council, can ever can ever change global conditions meaningfully. But I think we also have to look at ourselves. We Europeans. I mean, we white European Christians. That we have turned out to be the most dangerous people who ever stepped on the globe. We're responsible for slavery and colonialism and genocide and going right back to the days of the, the Aboriginals or the Africans and all. King what, Leopold, who supposedly killed 10 million people in the Congo uh, during his period. So we Europeans, I mean, and Christianity has a complete and total failure. I mean, I don't know any other place where where religious churches of the, of the Anglican uh, Protestant uh, brand fly military flags in their churches. I remember the Cardinal of um, Saint whatever it is in New York telling uh, Americans <clears throat> to go to Vietnam and kill communists for Christ. Mm. I mean, so the failure of Christianity is absolutely total, total. I mean, I, I mean that in every way. And uh, well, we have, you know, we have, the Vatican was involved uh, uh, the, in the Nazi genocide. You know, not, not yes, just the Protestant, the Catholic. The way they, they they facilitated the escape of Nazis. I mean, so the Church and Christianity as a whole is so much more abhorrent than any other the work of any other faith and i'm including right-wing buddhists who we found both in sri lanka and of course yeah. in myanmar right. and others you know I, I won't go in i don't want to get mixed up in islam and all the rest but we, are, we all have our weaknesses but we christians we white christians are the world of all so we've now got a residue of in africa and, and, and of course we're all looking at the united states now where black americans are being killed. And the fact that somebody was killed is not the issue. The issue is 400 years of slavery. And the fact that young African Americans, they stop at a red light and the cops are there, they're afraid they'll be killed. I mean, it's it's an everyday occurrence. And I lived in New York, you know, on and off over the years, various assignments overseas for 25 years. I know that the fear of black Americans. I worked with black Americans. I had friends who had sons of 17 and 18, when they went out at night, they weren't worried would they ever come home again mm. because they were afraid of the police. So it's a, it's a horrifying, appalling situation that we have created, this discrimination, inequality. And inequality comes in many different forms. I mean, not just color or skin, or but wealth and all the rest of it, opportunity. But we, we have a, that's got to be resolved. I mean, the UN is, um, Corrupted, I think, and, and extremely disappointing. And I, you know, I don't regret the years I spent because I worked for UNDP in development projects in Iran and Malaysia, Singapore, the South Pacific. We did some good work, but the UN, the political UN, and the genocidal side of the business is a total failure. And I think mankind has got to start afresh. We've got to look at this thing again. And we, we, those of us who ended up thinking we're superior and white and maybe Christian and all the rest of it have got some rethinking to do and how it's to be done. I wish I knew the answer. I honestly don't know. It's a, uh, it's a nightmare. Well, the, the most certainly, um, as Angela Davis put it in her, um, uh, interview, uh, you know, two days ago on uh, channel four news in the, um, in UK, you know, we are witnessing an extraordinary, uh, process where, you know the the world's consciousness seems to be shifting, and rec- you know forcing um, uh, the uh, you know the European nations, North American white um, governments, uh, to essentially come to terms with their dark past. And so, uh, I I I suppose um, 
you know, the, the, we will have to keep um, uh, pushing the boundaries and, and fighting um, as, uh, you know, despondent as we may feel about the United Nations. I, I, I suppose like we can't give up on um, fellow humans who are uh, particularly new generations who are taking uh, taking up the fight. So, De- Dennis, um, thank you so much uh, for for this very, very grounded and uh, personal and uh, reflective interviews. And uh, um, and so we are going to end uh, now. Okay. Yeah. Thanks so much. You have a good evening. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks.